0: Please take your Bibles and have them handy. Once again, uh, we, we are topical this morning. Um, we'll be finishing this series soon. This is really where we've been going with this series from the beginning. Uh, I preached a family series in, in May and June between Mother's Day and Father's Day of this last year. I did not intend to come back to the family, but it was in um, October that we had our picnic, if you recall, at the Heinemans. And while we were there, I preached a message from Chronicles about transferring faith from generation to generation. And the necessity of making sure our children have their own faith and that our faith that we instill in them transfers to their faith. The transfer of faith. And as I preached this message uh, of the necessity to transfer our faith to our children, that they would transfer their faith from just their church or from their their parents to their own faith, to stand on their own spiritual feet. And several families come up and say, well, Pastor, it's true, we need that. Uh, We we needed that as a family, but how? And as we stepped into this new year, these last three weeks, we've been affirming what we are as a church. We're a non-age segregated church. We don't split up the family, we keep the family together in church, and we've talked about why over the past three weeks. The first week was principles of spiritual instruction. Those principles that we all agree on as to what it means to instruct our children in the ways of the Lord. And we talked about the balance between the the family's role and the church's role. The next week we got into history a little bit and talked about some of our concerns with an age segregated model as it has revealed itself today. And why we have we, we we feel like there are some some hindrances to proper spiritual instruction, multi-generational instruction, the transferring of faith from one generation to the next that are more likely to occur in a age-segregated model. Then last week, we, we tried to be very self-aware and recognize some of the problems with a non-age-segregated model, some of the uh, um, things that we have to fight through, some of the hindrances that we might come into contact with simply because of... Uh, the model that we have chosen. And so this week we kind of get to where I wanted to go with this, which is God's model of Christian growth. How to raise our children in, in a manner that will help them transition faith to being their own faith from simply that young child doing what we do because mom and dad, this is what mom and dad believe, this is what the church believes. And so we're going to explore how. It will not necessarily be a comprehensive exploration. No, no sermon can be, only various series or certainly books. But we're going to take an overview of the model that the Bible teaches us of Christian growth. How a person goes from being an unbeliever to a baby believer, then from a baby believer to a mature believer. And if we can understand how that works, how a person gets from being an unbeliever to an to a, a, a infant believer, to a mature believer, then we as parents can use that as a guide to help us understand how we can guide our children through those various steps of life. And in every case, we can have confidence if we are identifying God's role, what God is doing, what God has designed to happen in Christian growth, and we are aligning ourselves with it, we can have confidence that that we did our best for the Lord. Whether our children choose that path or not, we've done what the Lord has asked us to done to do, excuse me. And what we are going to do this morning is consider the the general steps that God takes us through in our Christian life, leading us unto what the Bible calls perfection. Now, this is not a secret list. And this is not some sort of special insight. This is what the Bible presents as a normal, functioning Christian. Life, uh, Faith is initiated. That's a one-time action. After faith is initiated, then you learn the faith and then you grow in the faith and then your faith is tested and then this happens over and over again. If you pass the test when you are tested, then perhaps the Lord moves you on to a new test. If you don't pass the test, then the Lord starts over again and we learn and we grow and then we're tested and this is how God works on us. This is how the Christian life functions. And as we move toward these goals, as we are tested and we pass these tests, uh, we are moving towards what the Bible calls perfection, not sinlessness, but having all that is necessary to its nature and kind, being finished and complete. That's what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of perfection. And this is what God is doing every day in our lives. He is perfecting us, a process that we call sanctification. Now, as believers, when you see life this way, things become a little bit easier because when you see life this way, when you see that God is teaching and growing and testing our faith, then you can begin to identify what God is doing. So when the trial comes into your life, you can start saying, "Okay, is God, is this the chastening hand of the Lord or is this testing and if this, is the, if, if this is the chasing hand of the Lord, that means there's sin somewhere and I've got to find that and deal with that. If, if there's no sin, then this is testing. How can I, what, what's God trying to teach me? And, and, and how can I align myself with God's will so that this test is passed? Now, as parents, as role models, as elders, as those who are seeking to guide the next generation into the faith, this model should be our guide. Our lives should be a constant process of helping children understand their faith. And so let's talk about these steps together. We're going to take them one by one. And as we talk about these steps, we'll learn what the Bible teaches us about each of these steps as they as they occur. So we begin with initiating faith, initiating faith. The only exclusive one-time step on this list is the initiation of faith. This is the moment when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And make no mistake, it is a one-time moment which is definitive and irreversible. Once a person has accepted the gift of salvation by grace through faith, they are saved forever. The concept of eternal security is taught both explicitly and implicitly throughout the New Testament. We read in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Jesus speaking, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them, excuse me, out of my father's hand. Jesus tells us here that his sheep hear him, follow him, and they shall never perish. And then he says, no man can pluck them out of my hand. And then he says, furthermore, my father is greater than all. He gave me those sheep and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. What's interesting about this verse is we see it Here in our King James Bible, you'll notice there that there are several words that are in italics. And when in our King James Bible you come to words that are in italics, we recognize that those are words that do not have a corresponding word in the original Greek or Hebrew. So this is one of the blessings of our King James Bible is that the translators had um, enough clarity and intellectual honesty to say, okay, if we supply a word that doesn't have a Greek word behind it, we're going to tell you we supplied it so that you know that it's not in the originals. And everywhere where you see one of those italicized words, that means the word is not in the Greek. That means the word is supplied by the translator in order to help you understand. It's for, for, for clarity. However, what that also means is that This is a translator's opinion, right? These italicized words are words that are are there for clarity, but may not necessarily fully or 100% accurately reflect what the text is attempting to reflect. And in in this case, we might get a little of that here in, in, in John chapter 10. And for this reason. When we look at this word "no," the 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 "any" before the italicized man and the "no" before the italicized man in verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine, respectively, those words are, if you're familiar with language study, in the neuter tense. Now we don't have tenses in our English, but in many languages, including the original Greek, there was uh, a neuter. So there was a, a, a masculine, a feminine, and a neuter tense. And what that means is that we could rightly translate this not just. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand and neither shall or, and, and no, no man shall pluck them out of my father's hand but we could rightly translate this neither shall anything pluck them out of my father's hand and no no thing nothing shall pluck them out of my father's hand it's not just speaking of men here it's speaking of everything not a man not a spirit nothing can pluck you out of Christ's hand can pluck you out of your fa- the father's hand if you have been placed into Christ. And as John wrote his first epistle, the first the epistle of 1 John, he was not writing to unbelievers, he was writing to believers. And he wasn't teaching them a means of being saved, but rather the means of having confidence in their salvation. He says that he he wrote those things in 1 John that their joy may be full. And in 1 John chapter 5 verse 14 we read this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John says, and this is important, John says it is possible to know that you have eternal life. It is possible to know that you have eternal life, to have complete confidence that you have eternal life. And let me ask you this, just as a hypothetical. If you can lose your salvation at any point after you have legitimately received it, if you legitimately receive salvation and then at some point in the future you legitimately lose that salvation, did you ever have eternal life to begin with? It's not eternal life if it it ended at any point in, in the future. So if a person can know he has eternal life, know it. And eternal life is not eternal life if you lose it. Then you can't lose eternal life. Does that logical argument make sense? Let me illustrate. We live in an age of lifetime guarantees, right? There's lots of things on it that have lifetime guarantees. When I look for tools, when I shop for tools, I shop for tools that have a lifetime guarantee, implying that as long as I own the tool, the tool will work, or if it doesn't work, it will be repaired or replaced. But that's not really how most of these things work, is it? There are so many variables that aren't factored in to a lifetime guarantee. What happens if the manufacturer goes out of business? Lifetime guarantee is over. What happens if I use the tool in a way it's not designed to be used? If I abuse it? Lifetime guarantee is gone. Sometimes a lifetime guarantee is really just something like a 50 year guarantee, right? They say a lifetime guarantee on something. Well, by lifetime they mean 50 years, assuming, I guess, that nobody lives beyond that or something. I don't know. But lifetime guarantee, and what they mean by that is 50 years. And if we're honest with ourselves, there was nothing lifetime about a guarantee that I can lose if if the company goes out of business, that I can lose after 50 years, or that I can lose if I abuse the tool in a way that it's not supposed to be used. There's nothing lifetime about that guarantee. Now, it's still helpful when you're buying a tool to know that there's a warranty on it and whatnot. But but do you see that if eternal life is eternal life, then it can't have conditions. If we can know that we have eternal life, then you can't place conditions on that and still call it eternal life. If the Bible is true, if the God of the Bible cannot lie and the God of the Bible came to earth as a man and said these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Was that just a marketing ploy? Is that just a lifetime guarantee stamp on something that God wants you to receive, even though you can actually lose it if you don't shape up? Or is this the promise of God to us? If I receive the gift of everlasting life and at any point in the future for any reason I lose that gift then I never actually had eternal life. I never had it. If I had it and then lost it and this is irrefutable it was never eternal to begin with. And what this means is either we can receive the possibility of eternal life and then at the end of our days hope that we make it which by the way contradicts what the Bible says on several points or the Bible is true. We can know that we have eternal life, which means when we have it, it's ours. Same concept can be said in John five twenty four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. That's pretty definitive language, isn't it? You have everlasting life, you shall not come into condemnation, you have passed from death to life. If upon hearing and believing the gospel you have everlasting life, if upon hearing and believing the gospel you shall not come into condemnation, if you have passed from death into life, then either the Bible is wrong or salvation received at the moment of belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ recognizing that there's nothing that you can do to earn your way, that there's nothing that you can do to deserve it, that there's nothing that you will ever do to be worthy of it, that Jesus Christ did something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And when you accept that with all your heart, as the gospel tells us, you have eternal life. Jesus calls this eternal life being born again, the passing from death unto life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. And I've said this before. Can something that is born become unborn? You can kill it. You can destroy it. But can you unborn it? You can't. Can a new creation become undone to a, an old state? You can't. It doesn't work. The words of Scripture reveal not just explicitly but anecdotally that salvation, eternal life, must be that, exactly that. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here's the last bit. If grace is a gift that you receive... Through faith, not of yourselves, is there anything that you can do to lose something that you didn't gain, to earn? Is there anything you can do to not be worthy of that which you were never worthy of to begin with? If it was given to you without merit, then why should we ever think that our lack of merit can make us lose it? If I go up to somebody and... I know that they're a thief. And I give them money. And then I see them steal something and I say, well, now you give that money back for me because you're a thief. Well, wait a minute. If I knew that they were a thief to begin with and I gave it to them anyway, well, why should seeing them do something that I knew they were already merit them losing that which I gave them? If I didn't give it to them on any merit, then why would I take it away for lack of merit? If God has given us eternal life, not based on merit, not based on effort, not based on works, not because you go to church, not because you, you've been baptized, not because you've, you, you partake in communion, not because you help little, little ladies across the street, not because you give money to, to, to causes, not because you've tried to live a good life, not because you're associated with any group of people, not because of any of these things, but he has given it to you because he loves you and his son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to purchase for you salvation so that Christ's righteousness is applied to your behalf at the moment you accept it, then why would we think that our unrighteousness could cause us to lose it? Our righteousness didn't cause us to earn it. It's not how we gained it. So why would, through lack of merit, we lose it? Now that was a bit of a side note, but an important side note nonetheless. Initiating faith. That's where we are. We're talking about initiating faith in our children. You've heard the gospel this morning uh, slightly. It wasn't the most clear presentation of the gospel. But if you are here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior... If as I tell you that the gospel is a free gift that you cannot deserve and that does not ring true to you, if you've been trusting your merit, if you've been trusting the things you do, if you've been trusting anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you, or if you've never even considered before that you're a sinner and your sin has separated you from a holy God, and you've never considered before that because you are separated from a holy God, the righteous penalty for that is death and hell. And if you've never considered that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from from your sins, to purchase for you what you could not do for yourself. If you've never considered these things and this morning that that rings in your heart, that the Holy Spirit is saying, I need this. Would you come talk to me after the service? And I can open the Bible and lead you through and show you what the Bible says about how you can know that you have eternal life. Now, as far as raising our children is concerned. Before a child has accepted Jesus Christ as their their Savior, it is our privilege to work alongside the Bible's presented methods of conviction to help draw a child to the understanding of their need. We teach children how to behave, how to act properly at a young age, but always with an eye toward the fact that they are not in Christ, they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit convincing them, convicting them to do right, and are operating in the blindness and the selfishness of their sinful impulses because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. You don't need to hide this fact from them. And in fact, you should not. Our children need to know that they are sinners. Our children should know that the penalty for sin is separation from God and eternity in a place called the lake of fire. Our children should understand the solution is believing the gospel alone by grace alone through faith alone. And that means that we need to understand how a person comes to faith so that we can help our children. Help guide our children into that. In uh, John 16, Jesus was teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. And as he taught in verses 7 through 11, he said this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. The comforter being the Holy Spirit in this context. But if I depart, I will send him unto you, and when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father... And you see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Jesus says that the comforter, the Holy Spirit, will reprove that word meaning to convince or to convict the world in three areas. This is the Holy Spirit's work in the unbelieving world. He convicts them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, he says, because they do not believe on Christ. Indeed, salvation hinges upon this fact alone, accepting the gospel, believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And we know, uh, as you've heard before, that this is not just mental assent, right? To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a head knowledge of the things of God. As a matter of fact, James tells us even the devils believe and tremble. This is an understanding of who Jesus is. This is a recognition of every of, of the fact that He is God, that what He said is true, that He came to do what He said He did, that He died on the cross to save us from our sins, to pay a debt that we could not pay, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day in victory over the grave. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, it is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. A refusal, a turning away from anything and everything else that I might be trusting in to earn myself merit with God and a turning to faith alone in Christ alone and indeed this is that hinge upon which eternal life teeters it is belief Jesus said in John 3 18 he that believeth is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten son of God the sin of unbelief is the sin for which men will spend eternity in the lake of fire and what we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit, in the lives of our unbelieving children, the Holy Spirit is active in working on their hearts, in convic- convicting them and convincing them of this problem that they have not believed on Christ. He will also convict the world of righteousness, the Bible says, because Jesus has gone to the Father. The Holy Spirit is not just showing them that they are outside of belief, that they are unbelievers as evidenced in their sinful actions, as rooted in their sin of unbelief. But he's also showing our children that Jesus is righteous, that whereas they have not believed that they are unrighteous, that Jesus Christ is righteous. That where we fail, Jesus did not. That where we fall short, Jesus has not. That we are sinners and Jesus is holy. And then third, he will convict the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So of belief of sin, of sin because they believe not in me. So they, they, they'll be convicted that they're sinners. That will be evidenced in their daily lives as they sin. And it will be rooted in their sin of unbelief. Then they'll be convicted of the fact that, that, that Christ is righteous and they are not. That, that they are unrighteous. That Jesus is righteous. And then third, they will be convicted of the reality of judgment. That the prince of this world is judged. That there is a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that if we don't accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will be there too. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of every unbeliever. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Now, when we identify that this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in our children, we can then work with the Spirit of God to help our children understand these things. The question is how? Well, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17 say this. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then, verse 17, we skip to verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So if faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, then our primary job as parents is to help them come to faith by helping them hear the word of God. Teaching our children about the Bible singing with our children about the Bible. When you go on a hike, highlight Christ in creation. When you watch a movie, use it as points of discussion to bring it back to what the Bible has to say. Use the opportunities around you to confirm the teachings of the Word of God and the character of God. And one of the most helpful and useful elements of the Bible at this age is biblical morality, the law. As believers, we're not under the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. And indeed, there is no man that can be justified by the law. But Paul teaches that the law is very useful in showing believers, unbelievers, excuse me, their need, how far they fall short. As Paul was speaking about the Jews specifically in this context, he's speaking specifically about the Jews. But I think we can comfortably expand it to to the unbelieving world. He said in Galatians chapter 3 verses 19 to 24, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law uh, given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scriptures hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, remember, this was speaking of the time before Christ. This was speaking of the time when the Jews were kept under the law. So it's not a one to one here. But what we do see is Paul saying the law was intended to do something. And what the law was intended to do in the heart of the Jew was to show them that they could not measure up to God's righteousness. And as they recognized they could not measure up to God's righteousness, then they understood that they needed something else. They needed something more. And Paul describes this concept in Romans chapter 5 as well. He says in verses 20 to 21, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see a bit of a link here that brings us to the concept of the unbelieving world of the church and those who are not a part of the church of this age of um, grace where the law still enters that the offense might abound. In other words, the point of the law is to highlight our offenses, to make it obvious to us that we are sinners. And when we talk about the law, we're not just talking about The Mosaic law. We're talking about the law of God, right? We're talking about the law of God written on our hearts. That which conscience clearly dictates is right and wrong. That which every man has inside of him. That helps him understand that there is a God and that he's accountable to that God. And this is essential for our children to understand. Don't try to shield them from the realities of their own sinfulness. Now, you don't need to pound them over the head with it scaring them so deeply about the realities of hell that they will do or say anything to be reassured by mom and dad that hell is not their fate. We don't want them there. We, we don't want manipulation, fear, or intimidation to be the driving factor for them to want to make a decision. Such emotions are not conducive to genuine faith. But as we have already mentioned, using the circumstances of the day to teach them of Christ so too is it our privilege to use the circumstances of the day to reveal to them their own sinfulness. So when they fight, when they lie, when they are unkind, when they are selfish and take a toy from another at a young age, don't just appeal to mom and dad's rules for the basis of their consequences. Don't just say, you've, you've broken mom and dad's rules. Appeal to God. We discipline you because you did that which is against God's character, against God's word. And remind them that God has asked us as parents to discipline them and so if we don't discipline them then we're disobeying God by not doing so. And as this conversation continues you can show them how the reason they are having such a hard time obeying God's rules is because they don't have the Holy Spirit of God to help them. And because they are sinners they by nature don't want to do that which God says and that by nature they want to rebel against God because that's what humans do. Don't be cruel with it. Don't be mean. You don't have to scare them, but tell them the truth and use the circumstances of their own existence, of their own lives, of their own choices to remind them of those truths. So when you discipline, connect that discipline with their choice, not with your emotions. Don't discipline them because they finally boiled boiled you over the top. Discipline them because they have offended the truth. Then they connect discipline to offense of the truth. Tell them that you're disciplining them because God has given you that responsibility. Tell them that they have sinned because we are all sinners. And if the conversation leads to it, which it won't necessarily do every time, but will from time to time, bring up that the penalty of sin is death and hell, separation from God forever. Teach them the gospel that Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he rose again the third day to save us from those sins that our, will become so clear to them as, as they, they live and as, as they interact with others. Have them repeat that to you. Make sure they know that. Make sure when you say, what is the gospel? They can tell you, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day to save us. Make it clear that they have not yet accepted Christ, but that you hope that they will one day. And don't just jump on it the first time they say they want to be saved. Ask careful questions. Look for the marks of Holy Spirit conviction. Look for positive signs that they truly understand the gospel. Their own sinfulness. Jesus' righteousness. Judgment upon unbelief. Because this is how God convicts the hearts of men, right? Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because the father, because the, the son has ascended to his father. And of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. All you are doing is working with God to help your children, guide them in the way they should go. You're, you, you, are, you are partnering with the Holy Spirit to lead them to that next step in their spiritual life. So how will you know? When a person knows he needs to be saved, it will not be a fleeting thought, will it? When a person understands eternity in hell, they will flee to Christ. When when your children are ready, they will, will not be distracted. They, they will make the choice. Now, sometimes there's there is a moment. Uh, there's a point where they say I want to be saved and the father can lead the child through an understanding and and, and sometimes there's not. Where all of a sudden it's like you you can tell. Something's changed. Where they begin to bear fruit. Where they begin to respond to conviction. Both of those are okay. Neither one of those is a problem. There's no set method and as we've talked about before, the method of, of, of leading our children through a prayer, particularly if we've not been very careful, can be dangerous because it can give them a false hope, a false a false assurance, because they're they're relying upon a memory. And so even though they don't see fruit, and even though they're not being under conviction, even though they're not being chastened, they have a memory, right? And so they're just desperately relying upon that memory. And there's nothing else but that memory. That's not enough. A memory is not enough. So perhaps as they begin to inquire about accepting Christ as the family is directed toward this fact that all are sinners and need to be saved and they come up and say hey daddy I want to talk to you about this or hey mom and maybe uh, do a little test Um, they come and say they want to be saved and maybe say okay would would you go uh, would you go empty the trash for me first see if they come back see if it's so much on their mind see if the Holy Spirit's actually doing the work See if the Holy Spirit is actually, if they're responding to the Holy Spirit so that they can go empty the trash and and, and still have it on their minds and come back and say, okay, can we pick up where we left off? If they have become deeply distracted, well, maybe wait a bit longer. If they're serious, if conviction is really pressing on them, they'll come back. They'll ask again. That's just a a, a suggestion. Um, And then you explain the gospel again. You encourage them to accept that gift of salvation. All of this is you as a parent working together with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to do what God says it will do itself. And so, faith is initiated in the child. Your child accepts Christ as their Savior. Now, what? Now, now now's the the most important part. See, the, the initiation of faith is not the end; it's the beginning. Right? They're born again. Now they're an infant in Christ. Now it's time to grow. It's time to teach. And so next you teach them the faith. It's essential to understand that when a child gets saved, your job is not finished. Your job has only just begun. This is the important part. Regardless of their age, they are a baby Christian and like any baby, they will need nurturing, help, and guidance if they are to grow. Your children may one day become great athletes, but if they become great athletes, it's because there was a day where they picked up a ball or they picked up a hockey stick or they put on those skates or they put on those skis or whatever it might be, and then hours and hours and hours of discipline and repetition and practice will make them a great athlete. Your children may one day become a good musician. But it started when they heard the notes, when they started plucking on the instrument, and then hours and hours and hours of discipline and practice. And your children may one day become powerful children, uh, um, servants of, of, of the living God, but it will only come as we start with the basics, and then we work in our children godliness. John wrote in 1 John chapter 227, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you and ye need not that any man teach you but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie and even as it hath taught you ye shall abide in him. Just like comforter uh, was the Holy Spirit in, in uh, John uh, 16 here in First John chapter 2 the anointing that's the Spirit of God as well. And this is your help parents. See this is your assurance. This is your help because you aren't going about this alone. You aren't the only one teaching your child if your child is a believer. The Word of God is, as the Word of God is taught and read and heard, the Holy Spirit is taking those spiritual truths and making them real, relevant, and completely discernible to your children. Now, some of this may come with development as they get older and such, obviously, especially depending on who's telling it and how they're saying it. But the Holy Spirit is doing this work of teaching. This doesn't mean we don't need pastors and teachers, right? This simply means that as the word of God is being spoken, as it gets into our our ears, the spirit of God is taking it and making it discernible. You perhaps have heard the testimony, or perhaps you've experienced this for yourself. Someone who accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and then they describe their their life afterwards, it's as if scales fell off my eyes, or as if blinders fell off my eyes. They saw the world entirely differently. Their mindset changed completely. They once thought one way, now they think another way. And as naturally as they once thought one way, they naturally now think another way. This is the Holy Spirit teaching. This is the Holy Spirit developing in them the realities of a biblical worldview, and as the Holy Spirit is working in you, a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, the worldview of that person will change. It changes the way you understand people. It changes the way you understand actions and politics and entertainment. It changes everything. Now, in a small child, their world is very is very small to begin with, right? So you won't necessarily see a bunch of changes because their, their world is already so small. But you ought to begin to see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Conviction for sin, a desire to do right, a deeper understanding of the things of God. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so an a unbelieving child can understand mentally these things, but you can tell when it starts to actually bear fruit in discernment. And that's what you should be looking for in your child. Looking for conviction of sin. Looking for discernment about good and evil. Because these are the things that the spiritual man, the new creation in Christ, is able to do that the unbeliever is not. So teach them. Teach them, teach them, teach them, teach them. That God wants his followers to read the Bible and learn of him. Teach them that God wants his followers to pray and, and, and to to know him through prayer. Teach them that God expects those who follow him to be baptized after their salvation. Teach them integrity, truth, obedience, faithfulness, sincerity, honor. Teach them what it means to, to be true in forgiveness. What, what true forgiveness is. Excuse me to exhibit love, even to the unlovely. Teach them how to confess their sin and then release their sin. Teach them the difference between conviction and guilt, that they should love and be sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but they should utterly refuse the condemnation that Satan would seek to bring into their hearts. Keep things appropriate to their age, but never, ever stop teaching them what it means to be a Christian. Show them. Let them serve with you. Pray with you. Study with you. Give them projects as they get older. Once they're at essay writing age, say, hey... In the next six months, I want you to do a study on what the Bible says about love and write an essay about it. Hey, over the next six months, I want you to tell me everything that the Bible has to say about forgiveness and give me your conclusions. Hey, over the next six months, I want you to to find every name of God in the Bible and tell me what those names mean. Over the next six months, I want you to tell me every ministry that the Holy Spirit has uh, as as displayed in the Bible and, and tell me what it means. This is not beyond a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old to do. And what are you doing? You are pressing them to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as their understanding and you teach them. But always turn these lessons back to the Bible. We do this because they please God. Not so that we can be saved, but because we have been saved. Obedience is a love response to salvation. We don't do what we do to earn God's merit. We do what we do out of love because we have already earned God's Merit through Christ. You begin with the simple things, what the Bible calls the milk of the word, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. A young Christian, regardless of age, won't know discernment. And if you simply leave them to themselves, whether it's somebody who gets saved at 40 or somebody who gets saved at 14... They're not going to immediately know how to discern. They're not going to immediately become mature in the faith. My daughter, who was born three months ago tomorrow, she didn't get born. And I look at her and say, "Okay, here's the thing. Next week, I need you to start doing the dishes. And then as soon as it gets nice outside, you're going to start mowing the lawn. You can't do that. She has to grow. She has to be nurtured. You have to get her to a point of maturity before she is able to accept those responsibilities. It's the same with Christian faith. We can't just roll the dice and hope our children are going to get there. Grow them. Grow them. You're their parent. You know them. You know their spiritual needs. You know their spiritual weaknesses. Help them grow. If you simply leave them to themselves to figure it out, you're playing a very dangerous game with their spiritual life. One of the things I've learned in my five and a half or so years up here in Minnesota is that people up here, their faith is very personal. They don't talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. Parents don't talk about it with their children. Children don't talk about it with their parents. Faith is a very personal thing. That has to stop in you. That can't be that way for you. You as their parent, you must help your children grow their faith. You must talk to them about the things of the faith. And as they learn, you should be able to see the fruit of the Spirit. The most obvious confirmation of salvation is the fruit of the Spirit bearing out in their lives love Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You should see them responding to conviction. You should see them making choices that please God. And if you never see any of it, then maybe stick to the gospel and make sure that they have understood and accepted it truly. And if you don't see it, encourage them to, or if you do see it, excuse me, encourage them to obey those things that they have learned, and that is spiritual growth. And that's what we're getting to next. Growing their faith. So you teach their faith. Now let's grow their faith. This is your opportunity as a spiritual leader to direct your children in their God-given gifts. This is what God does to us, right? He initiates faith through His Spirit. Then He teaches us through His Word. Then He grows us through circumstances. And then He tests us. This is what God does. Let's partner with God in our children's lives in doing this. We all have gifts. We all have areas of weakness and failure. Our children need to know this. You as a parent will be more attuned to those strengths and those weaknesses, probably even than your child himself or herself. And it is your responsibility for your child, like a garden, to weed that garden, to water that garden, to feed that garden, to nurture it up into maturity. As you interact with your children, you will notice character traits. Understand that I told you a couple of weeks ago that my twin daughters are like night and day One of my daughters is a natural leader She's stubborn when she doesn't understand, but when she does understand she is ready to comply She is tenacious. She is curious. She is ambitious. My other daughter who is her twin Is a natural follower. She's entirely compliant until she gets something a bee in her bonnet and then she's immovable And then she's immovable. But she gives up easily. She has very little natural ambition or motivation. Twin daughters, night and day different personalities. Do you think I need to approach them differently in the spiritual realm as as we seek to help them initiate faith and then learn faith and then grow in faith? Absolutely. It might be a little bit different planting tomatoes than it is planting watermelons might be a little different tending to an apple tree than it is an orange tree. God can use tenacity and leadership tendencies. God can also use compliance and that natural follower instinct. God can use curiosity. God can use a lack of curiosity. God can use all of those things. But each of these character traits, each strength can also become a hindrance, a vice, if they don't submit it to the Lord. Even good things that they have, even the good traits can become a problem when not submitted to Christ. So spiritual growth is the process of teaching them how to pinpoint their actions, their thoughts, their tendencies, their characteristics, their passions, their desires, and learning how they can submit every single one of those things that God has gifted them with to Christ. When they fail, they need to know why they have failed and what they can do to change it. But... I think a lot of us as parents are afraid of our children, in one sense. We're afraid of what they might say or what they might think. We're afraid to bring up the conversation because we're afraid of where it might go. But if we love them and we want to help them grow, let's partner with the Spirit of God and help them grow. So your children have a lying problem. You discipline them for it. And as they get older, the lying persists. They need to be led to God's word on the issue. Don't just take away privileges. Expect them to understand what the Bible has to say about lying. Who is God? God is truth. God hates lying. Why does God hate lying? Because God is truth. That which is lying is that which is characterized by that which is not of God. Use the fact that they have the Holy Spirit indwelling to an advantage. How many Christians can honestly do a study on lying, can see what the Bible has to say about it, can understand the character of God, being a true believer, and walk away unchanged? Talk with your children about their character faults. Give them guidance on what God wants them to do and how to gain control over their own spirit. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they know they have that fault and they're just waiting for someone to come alongside and say, let me help you. And they'd say, thank you. Because I'm struggling with this. All the while, helping them grow into autonomy, into spiritual maturity. At some point, you'll stop telling them where to read the Bible, but maybe expect them still to read it hold them accountable to that. And then at some point you'd expect that they don't even need to be held accountable anymore because it's their faith. As they handle responsibility, give them more responsibility as they prove themselves trustworthy, give them more trust. When they fail in their responsibilities, dial back those privileges, dial back that trust as they break your trust, give fewer freedoms. This is the process of growth. This is how God treats us. God tells us in Luke 16:10, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Keep your finger on the spiritual pulse of your children. Know what they are learning, and that's where our model helps. Know what they are learning. Watch to see if it is changing them, if they are conforming their lives to what they are learning from the Word of God. If not, ask them why. Don't just sit and stew. Don't worry when your kids aren't making right decisions. I mean, you can be concerned. But help them make the right decisions. Protect your children from harm. And as they grow and exhibit personal discernment and the desire to do what's right, then you can allow that harm to get a little bit closer and see what they do, see how they react. And this leads us to our final phase. Testing their faith. Testing their faith. Sometimes these tests will present themselves. Other times you might have to actually bring the test up yourself. When you've been working with your child on a particular issue and when they have learned what the Bible says and you have been helping them to know what is right and they've shown a track record of learning and of growth, then it's your privilege to test them to see how they're doing. This is what God does, isn't it? He teaches us. He grows us. And then he tests us. This is what God does. I'll never forget, my my father-in-law is not here today, my mother-in-law is, but I'll never forget a test of character, I believe it was a test of character, that my father-in-law gave me when I was courting my wife. And I had just met them for the first time, I had driven down to Georgia from Colorado on my way down to college and stayed with them for a week, and I told my father-in-law, hey, I'd be more than happy to help you out in any way that I can while I'm here, and so he had various tasks that we did throughout that week. And one of the tasks that we were doing is we were anchoring a a um, cabinet into the cement wall in my wife's family's basement. And we drilled the hole to anchor into the cement. And I'd never used cement anchors before. And so he gave me a cement anchor and he said, go ahead and put this in. And I put the the anchor into the wall. But being as though I wasn't really thinking about it and had never done it before, I put it in thread first. Well, if you're putting in an anchor, of course, the anchor is not the threaded part. The threaded part is the part that then you anchor whatever you're anchoring into the wall. And he chewed me out. He said, how could you do that? What were you thinking? Like, literally, he chewed me out. Now, at the time, I I, I didn't really know this man. But now that I know him, I know that that's not his character. He wouldn't do that. What was he doing? I don't know. I could ask him. I've never asked him. I don't know if I will. But... I'm sure his wife will ask him now. But what do I believe he was doing? Seeing how I respond to authority. Testing me. Seeing if there's any part of me that might even be infinitesimally worthy of his daughter. Isn't that right? Shouldn't he be doing that? Whether we create the tests, whether we create a situation which would be conducive to a test... We should be about the work of assessing our children's spiritual growth, pinpointing their areas of weakness, and making those our new teaching and growing opportunities. Help your children. Test your children while the consequences are small and not when the consequences are huge. Test your children's spiritual resolve when the consequences are being stuck in your room or getting a spanking or not being able to go to the friend's house for that sleepover, as opposed to waiting until your children are making decisions about marriage and about jobs to to see if they're going to pass the spiritual tests. So when you teach your child to be kind, your child is around his siblings and he's unkind, you discipline the behavior. You use it to teach what the Bible has to say. Have your child repeat what the Bible says. Maybe have them memorize Ephesians 4.32 and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You teach your children these things. Now they know it. Well, now it's time to grow it. You give them uh, things to learn. You, you help them understand. You, you sit there and you watch them as they're playing and say, remember, be kind. Tell them that Give them an assignment. Tell them they must go do something deliberately and unusually kind for their sibling. And their sibling, they go and they do it, and that sibling doesn't even say thank you. Well, now you put in the back of your mind, okay, I need to work with that sibling on gratitude, right? You, you, you toggle that in the back of your mind, and then you go back to this child and you say, this is an opportunity for you to learn that sometimes when you're kind, people are not going to be gracious back to you. And you need to learn how to handle that too. And so you're teaching them, and they're growing. And then, as they grow, at some point, maybe you look for tests. So you're around a bunch of children, and you find the child that is really unkind. And you say, Hey, son of mine, go play with that child for a little bit. And you tell them to go play with that unkind child. And you sit and you watch as that child is unkind to them, and you see how your child responds. That's a test to test to see what your child is going to do to see if your child has responded to the spirit's conviction and the teaching of the word of God as it relates to kindness this is parenting on purpose this is you helping your children stand on their own spiritual feet you be the guide they make the choices and eventually they'll come to see the blessings of the way of truth because it's true And they will love the truth because the truth brings them indescribable peace, joy, safety, and love. But when our children don't experience these things because they're not being led into truth, they'll be more susceptible to the world's lies and the world's counterfeits. And make no mistake, Satan's counterfeits are out there everywhere. Satan has a counterfeit for love, for joy, for peace, for forgiveness. We could go on, could we not? I won't read to you everything that's up there. You can read it as I'm preaching. For those that are listening online, I'm sorry. Many Christians live their entire lives stuck in the the world's counterfeits. And it's little wonder that we lose our kids. We've lost ourselves. If we're just living in the world system and giving it Christian labels, the power of God will be non-existent in us. And the truth will not be validated in our hearts or in our children's hearts because... We're taking the world's counterfeits and we're just slapping Christian names on them. Do you know that, that the way the world defines love is different from how God defines love? But that a lot of Christians are living out their lives believing love is the way world, the world has defined it, emotional, emotion-based and feelings-based, not choice-based? Do you know that the, a large portion of, the, of the, the church is living in the world's definition of forgiveness? That I'll forgive you when you've earned it? That I'll forgive you only when you ask and not God's definition of forgiveness? even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you, you realize God purchased your forgiveness before you were even born? That he gave it to you before you even asked for it? Secured it. Of course, we have to still receive it, right? But he secured it for you? He reconciled the wrath between you and God on the cross. On that day. That's how Christ has forgiven us. But we live under the world's concept of forgiveness. We live under the world's concept of happiness. And so Christians are living in this kind of a roller coaster life. Good circumstances, I'm happy. Bad circumstances, I'm depressed. Good circumstances, I'm happy. Bad circumstances, I'm depressed. When the Bible teaches us about a joy that can transcend circumstances, that can keep us on a plane that is higher than that, so that when circumstances go up and down, yeah, I might be happy, I might be sad, but there is an overwhelming transcendent joy that keeps my heart, and same with peace. If we're teaching our children, however, the truths of God's word and the Holy Spirit is within them, then they will have every advantage to identify God's true principles and not the world's counterfeits. The world spends billions of dollars and millions of man hours trying to convince the people in this world of its counterfeits. Billions of dollars go into propping up the religions of secular humanism to convince a child that there is no God. To cast off moral bearings and that will make them happy. To cast off all restraint and that will make them free. It's the same lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Hath God really said? But we have something that they don't have. We have an advantage when it comes to our own children and it's not just that we're their parents. It's that we have the truth. They don't. And the truth is self-validating, is it not? And if truth is self-validating and we can express that truth to them, it will validate itself in their hearts through the Spirit of God. But they need to see it lived. They need to be compelled to live it. They need to be taught, grown, and tested so that they can then sell out to its claims. That's the process that God does in our lives. He initiates faith through His Spirit. Conviction. We receive it. We're now a child of God. Then He teaches faith through the Word of God. And we grow in our faith. And then He tests our faith. He proves our faith. Three points as we close. What does it all mean? Parents. Well, if you're going to teach them, you need to know. You can't lead a child into truth If you don't know the truth You can't lead your child Into the expectations of God's word If you don't know God's word yourself Why be in church? Because you need to know this stuff Not just for you But for your children And not if you don't have children For this generation of the church For the young people in our church Who might be looking up to you as well Who might seek to have you Become a mentor to them Why read your Bible because it's a big book and you need to know that book. Why memorize scripture so that you can know the Bible better, so that you can have it at, at a moment's notice, so that it can, you can meditate upon the word even when you don't have the word with you? If, you, if you're going to teach them, you need to know. If you're going to grow them, you need to be growing. Number two, as parents, you won't be perfect, and this is not a bad thing. You want to teach them humility, so show them that you know how to apologize as well. Show them that you're not perfect. You want to teach them forgiveness, so show them that you can for- forgive those who have deeply wronged you and have never asked for it. You want to teach them graciousness, so show them that you speak well of your enemies. And when you don't, apologize to them and say, hey, this is what the Bible says, this is what I did. They are in conflict. God is true, God's way is right. You want to teach them honesty? Let them see you be honest. Let them see you pick up that $20 bill from off the floor in the store and go turn it in in case someone asks for it. Let them see you do your taxes and say, see, look, punch it all in. See, if I lied about this, this, and this, we could get this much money, but I'm going to tell the truth and we're going to have less money coming back to us, but God will be pleased. And God will bless that. Let them see you obey. Let them see you drive the speed limit when you're in the car, not because you're afraid you might get caught, not because you have enough time this time, not because it's safer that way, but because by driving the speed limit, you're obeying God, and God blesses obedience. Be deliberate with them. Spend time with your kids in the Bible. Spend time with your kids in prayer. Bring them along when you minister. Help them find ministries that relate to their gifts and abilities. Encourage them to think about that. Teach them how to go about ministry. Encourage them to come up with their own ideas. Make it a part of school if you're homeschooled. Make it a condition of privileges. No, you can't go do this until you've done that. Identify their individual strengths and weaknesses and tailor your teaching and your growing to their needs. Help them in their weak areas. Encourage them in their strengths. Show them how their character traits can be used for good or for evil and help them... Understand how to submit those character traits to the Lord so they can be used for good. Help your children through the valley of guilt that their hearts will try to bring up to them. Remind them that 1 John tells them, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Remind them in Romans chapter 8 where where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Help them understand the difference between guilt and conviction. Teach them what a true friend is. What a good friend is. And encourage them to find true friends, good friends. Show them how to work first and play later. Show them what it means to be temperate in what we eat and how much we eat, in what we watch and how much we watch, in what we play and how much we play. Help them understand that we don't want to be imbalanced in our lives. Be honest. None of us are perfect. You're not perfect. You're growing, you're learning. You're struggling, you've got problems, that's okay. Your children know you have problems, and that's okay. But what they ought to see is you serving the Lord in spite, admitting where you have fallen short of God's perfection, and they ought to be recognizing you trying to work through those things unto God's perfection. So you grow your kids, you grow yourself. Finally, what does it all mean? If you're going to test, you need to be active. You've got to be active. Parenting on purpose. Set goals for your children. We set goals in life, don't we? Where does our church want to be in a year? In five years? In ten years? Where does my business want to be in a year? In five years? In ten years? We set milestones because if we have a milestone, then we push for it. Then we've got some place to go. What about your children's spiritual lives? Have them set goals for themselves. Sit down once a month with your children Have them pull out their goal sheet Where are you on your goals? You said you wanted to read the Bible this much this year You said you wanted to memorize this many verses You said you wanted to help this person or this many people You said you wanted to be able to do this for the family You said you wanted to work on this character trait You said you weren't being kind enough And you wanted to work on your kindness You said you weren't being temperate And you wanted to work on that You said you've been struggling in this area And you want to work on that Pull out the list How are you doing? Where can you go from here? Be active. Be their role model. Guide them. Take responsibility for yourself and help them take responsibility for themselves. Go out of your way to test them. Help them through their weaknesses and confirm them in their strengths. This is what God does. Jesus told us this in John 15, verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth fruit, beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. When you are a child of God and you are abiding in Christ, which means you're walking in fellowship with him, that's the idea. And you're starting to bear fruit. You know what you can recognize and and expect? Christ is going to purge you so that you'll bring forth more fruit. He's going to prune you. That's the idea there. That's what we do to trees, right? If we want them to grow, sometimes you have to prune them back so that they can grow more healthy. It's not a pleasant thing for the tree or the bush, but it will make them more healthy. It will make them more vibrant. It will help them bear more fruit. Once you see that your children are producing the fruit of the Spirit, you know them to be in the faith. Work with the Holy Spirit. To teach them, to grow them, and to purge them, to test them. Don't make life one big exam. Let your children be children. But don't waste their time either. As I mentioned, all of this came about as a warning. A warning several months ago about a young man named Joash. 2 Chronicles chapter 23. He served the Lord with vigor as long as his mentor, Jehoiada, was alive. But when Jehoiada, the high priest, died... Joash fell away. He turned from the Lord. The young man did good things, but only as long as his mentor was alive. When his mentor died, he fell away. He had never transitioned the faith from that of his mentor to being his own faith. Many parents came up and said, yes, but how, Pastor? That's what I tried to answer today. I don't have all the answers. My oldest are five years old. But... This is how God does it with us, right? And so I think we're on pretty firm ground to say if we partner with the Holy Spirit of God to just do in our children what God has said He's going to do, we'll probably be okay. The best part about this, the very best part about this, is that we aren't alone. And we need to know this last of all. Parents, you aren't alone in this. I call it the umbrella of God's sovereignty. If we are doing our best, seeking to serve the Lord, doing what His Word has asked of us, raising our children on purpose, God is not sitting up there and laughing in heaven as we go wrong. The umbrella of God's sovereignty can make up where we lack. While you're doing these things externally, you can rest assured that God is doing these things internally. The Holy Spirit is teaching and growing and testing. We're simply partnering with Him and allowing Him to do in our children what He promises to do in all of us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for God's people. Thank You for... This process of sanctification that you work in us. That we know that you are performing a good work. That we know that you don't waste trouble on us. That we know that you love us and that you have our best in mind. Pray for parents today, at any season of life... I pray as well for those in the church, maybe they're they're beyond that age, maybe their children are grown up, maybe they've never had children, but who are instrumental in this church and a part of being an example to the next generation of believers in this church. Help us, to whatever degree possible, to partner with the Spirit of God in the work that we have been taught in the Word of God you are doing. And give each of us wisdom to know what that means for us. Pray that this church would become a beacon of multi-generational faith, of young people who are determined, confident in their faith because they've seen it lived out, because they've been taught, grown, and tested.